This is episode 144. The Ultimate Deck Podcast. Need a show about outdoor living? This is where it's at. With your host, Shane Chapman and Wade Lorette. Thank you for tuning in. Now let the show begin. Yeah, the Ultimate Deck Podcast. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 144 of the Ultimate Deck Podcast. I hope that number's right. We forgot to look that one up. That was Bryce's pretty sure. best I'm pretty sure. guess. <laughs> It's 140-something I mean, for sure. I think the last one I put up was 143, so... We're well beyond how many I can count, like on hands and fingers. <laughs> We've been that way for, what, a whole year now? Uh, yeah, past what episode the, 20 for me, What Bryce. was the last time you thought you remembered the Wade actual number? Wade made it to 19, I made it to 20, and then since then, you and I have combined hands and still not yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. So, so. Whatever. Anyway, today we've got a special guest. Yes. All the way from Colorado. The one that people have been waiting Tornado for. Tornado country, I hear. That's right. Glenn Mathewson's with us today. How are you doing, Glenn? I'm doing great, guys. Awesome. So Glenn Mathewson, for those folks who don't know, I'm going to give the quick Coles Notes version, but Glenn is the deck code guru. So uh, we've had some requests for you on this podcast for a bit now because people want to get in here and... Um, pick your brain on deck codes because it's something they deal with every day. But before we get there, Glenn, why don't we talk a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Where are you from? What's the family situation? What's going on here? <laughs> uh, I'm Glenn Matthewson. I'm from uh, Texas originally and moved out here when I was 18 to snowboard. Uh, met my wife actually on a ski lift and we have three kids. They're all teenagers now. And that's a little bit about me. Um, I've hold, hold been out here, here in Denver, Colorado since moving no. out here at age 18. No, hold on. You met your wife on a ski lift? I did. And better yet at Loveland Ski Resort. Oh but yeah, God. it's a true fairy tale, except she drives me nuts now. After, you know, it's been 21 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <that laughs> fairy trail has come real. That sounds like fate. Like that's complete fate right there. So were you like, not that we need to dig into this too much, but were, no, you, it's fine. were you like waiting in line for a ski lift and then like it came around and then like they part, you just happened to be on the lift with her? I, I don't usually leave up to fate. I'm, I'm a, I like to steer my destiny. So actually, if you want to know the truth, <laughs> I was out there with a friend and she was out there by herself and she was in the singles line. It was a three chair lift. She was in the singles line. I was with my buddy and I spotted her and actually timed the singles line and waved a couple people through so that she would end up on our chair. Now, the <laughs> irony was there was shuffling getting on and my buddy ended up in the middle, but he just kind of leaned back and kept his mouth <laughs> shut because he knew he knew what my plan was. This is and so I, I was hooked because we got off the lift. We were talking about getting a beer or taking a break, this and that, you know, chatting. We got off the lift and she poo, took off fast. And that's when I knew like, all right, I need to chase this woman down. <laughs> That's a fantastic story. I feel like we should just dig into your personal life more and leave the deck codes alone. So Colorado, now whereabouts in Colorado? In the Denver area. You know, if I told you Arvada, you wouldn't know. Oh yeah, my in-laws yeah. in live there. Oh, okay. No, I just not. usually tell people the Denver area. You know, it's the big metropolitan. You wouldn't know driving. You can drive around 30 different jurisdictions and you have no idea that you cross borders. Yeah, yeah. My in-laws are not there. I was joking. Your in-laws are not there. <laughs> so, uh... I want to dig into a little bit about how you got into what you're doing now, because it's not like everybody grows up and says, what do you want to be when you get older? And they're like, well, I sure would like to write some deck codes. Um, so, yeah. so, so how exactly did you end up in this line of work? Uh, well, 
uh, I moved out here and I was working for a movie theater. I started working at a young age and got promoted to the assistant manager at a movie theater. And so that gave me a resume and something I could do to, to, to come move alone at 18 to Colorado. Uh, so got a job, at, you know, another job as an assistant manager and decided when I was about 19 that I needed to try something new. So I took off the suit and tie and became a laborer in construction and just literally started at the bottom as bottom as you could get and moving lumber. And then I got to start doing punch lists for the inspectors. I was a laborer for a framing contractor who did turnkey houses. He'd, you know, build the frame, the house, side, the house, do the decks, and then turn the whole, the whole property over to the home builder. So he made his money off the materials. So he paid me to make sure that I stacked up all the materials after the framers were done. And then I got to slowly start learning some carpentry by fixing the inspector's punch lists, by fixing the foreman's punch list. It was better to keep the home building crews moving and just let the one guy come in and fix the stuff. And you know that rolled into building decks for the, for the builder. And then that rolled into going out as a subcontractor to do decks on my own. And then I started selling them to homeowners. You know, and then that went through my whole deck career and then the question is, you know, how did I turn to the dark side, as my construction friends said back then? Well said. Is, yeah. yeah, I was building yeah. to meet what was the biggest and most amazing deck that I had ever had the opportunity to build. And I was I was on that job. We had, you know, a few weeks left wrapping it up, maybe a month. I don't know. It was a long time ago, 15 years ago, 16. And I looked at all the rest of my projects I had, and they were all great decks, but I just kind of felt they just all looked boring to me. And so I decided, yeah, I need to do something different now. I was 28 years old and um, I had two young kids at the time. And I never really got good at being a businessman. I was partnered with another friend who was much better at the business side. And I found myself sort of as the partner kind of leading and being the foreman on the construction. And I, and it just hit me like, I'm not sure where this is going to take me. Uh, so I started trying looking for something different and uh, i'd always had an interest in the codes and there's more i can blab about that but that's kind of like how i ended up from a laborer to getting a job as a building inspector in 2005 i was 28 at the time okay so how did you how did you decide to make that flip because to your point a lot of contractors kind of view building inspectors and code officials and codes and but themselves as roadblocks as people that they that are just there to cause them problems they're the bad guys you must have been on that side of it at one point what made you think that you wanted to switch teams and and be that guy you know i don't think to be honest i don't think i really thought about being that guy when i made the switch i didn't realize then you know what still the potential would have getting into the code industry to be honest i was just looking for a job that was going to give me 40 hours a week, let me go home and not do sales calls in the evening and estimates and drafting and, and would mm-hmm. spend the time with my two kids. I'm sure there was some pressure from the wife. If I, you know, if I go back that far and remember, but truthfully, I just, you know, I explored being a superintendent for a home builder as well as being an inspector. And then something just got me going with the idea of, of being an inspector. Uh, you know, I can't really say, honestly, I've just kind of taken life as a little bit of a journey. And when something feels interesting or feels right, I, I give it a shot. My guess is at 28, probably too many people liked you and you're like, I could use, <laughs> I could use some hate in my life. I should, <laughs> I, I yeah. should be a building inspector. You know, <laughs> give myself I mean, some gravel. To- one, 
one thing I really did make a point when I started into the inspection industry was to be a friendly inspector. Um, and that was always my goal. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky, you know, friendly person. I, I try to stay pretty lighthearted about things in life. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a helpful inspector. Uh, now I got to tell you, that's hard to hold on to. <laughs> I <laughs> bet it is. You get into that job, and you know, as a new inspector, I was specifically doing a lot more of the residential work. They typically start new inspectors with residential work. Yeah. My background was in residential construction. I had residential certifications for inspection when I started. And so you start in residential. And, yeah. you know, no offense yeah. to anyone, I'm just a straight talker. But truth of the matter is you get a lot less professionalism in the residential construction industry than when you move to commercial construction. In, in commercial construction, people... People know what they're doing. Right. Uh, and so, you know, starting out in residential construction, uh, I wanted to kind of try to be more helpful about that and try to show code. And I think I forgot I already like misplaced where I was going with that story. Um, <laughs> well, good. <laughs> we can finish that story. Um, so now to fast forward a bit, you're quite involved with the North, Amer North American Deck and Rail Association, uh, who is also a good voice for the decking industry. What's... What does that relationship look like with them and how have they yeah. kind of, how have they been able to kind of empower you to do what you're trying to do? Uh, yeah. First I want to back up real quick and talk about what I was, I remembered where I was going with that sure. other story yep. is in residential construction. Sadly, the attitude is often, what do I need to do to please the inspector? Yes. Just, just what just tell me what to do. Yeah. And that goes to your head guys. Stop doing that to your inspectors. Cause I admit in my five years that my first five years as an inspector and learning code and really taking off in the code industry, five years of contractors just saying, well, what do you want me to do? Just let me please you and kissing your butt. Yeah. It can go to your head. And I have to confess it was starting to go to my head. And then I had the recession hit. And suddenly I had about a nine month break from the city and I was back on the other side of the building code counter with a consulting company. And I, and it was like a big wake up call to me that I was starting to get that attitude. So, so I just am admitting that if you empower those inspectors that way, don't blame them that they take the power. Right. Um, but your question with NADRA. So what got me into working with NADRA? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I've known NADRA since it was people putting $100 in a hat at the Reno Deck Expo <laughs> in like 2004 or something like that. I was a deck, that was when I was a deck builder still, went to Reno and uh, went around the, the home show to kind of check things out for the company. And that's when I ended up in the, where NADRA was actually formed in that room. Now I confess, I'm a super proponent for professional organizations and joining NADRA and joining our voices. But at that time, I was just a young 20-something year old deck builder, and I did not put my $100 in the hat to start it. Um, so that always stuck with me. And then when I got into codes and rolling into the code business, and then I wrote a book based on the 2009 code. And I can't remember exactly how I sort of reconnected and talking with NADRA. Like, I don't remember the catalyst of it. But it was around that 2010 time. And my goal, again, by that time, my own personal goal had been build up the professionalism of the deck industry, help them realize the codes, the value of knowing the codes themselves, not just doing what the inspector says 
yes, you have to do that, but, but knowing beyond that, not, I mean, just locked to that. Um, and so working with NADRA gave me a chance to try to help have some, some teammates in this goal of raising the professionalism of the deck industry. And that's okay. kind of, that was my motivation for really getting, getting connected with them. Okay. And now today, are, are you guys working, like, are you on the phone with them daily? Like what's, what's the relationship now and how do they help you? Yeah. Um, we help each other and I'd say I'm on, I'm on the phone or email with them weekly Okay, and definitely, you know, keeping communication going. Um, it's a small organization. So in the code arena where I do a lot of my work with them, um, there's a lot of major, huge organizations in AHB, you know, think organizations that have been around for a long, long time, American Wood Council, all of these folks, large amounts of membership, large amounts of revenue, which equals resources. And so, you know, truthfully with NADRA, there's so much more work I would like to do with them, but, um, you know, it's limited what I can actually, what I can actually achieve. But um, we, we work on education together. We work on developing the code. That's one of the biggest things is, you know, NADRA membership, those that organ that join that organization and pool the resources of, of the industry together, those are the only folks where I get funding to be able to go to those hearings uh, other than just my charity. Right. Okay. Okay. So the way we're going to, thanks for the intro and kind of get, like laying the groundwork for who you are, what you do so that, uh, you know, people don't think we just dressed one of our yard guys up and put him in front of, <laughs> put him in front of a bookcase and we're like, code he's, questions, fire away. He's just downstairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we've got a few of our own questions we kind of wanted to ask you, but we also had opened it up to the folks on Instagram to ask some questions. And we have those here as well. Now we also have the live Instagram feed going at the same time. And so if anybody in the live Instagram has any questions along the way for Glenn, just simply type them into the chat and we'll get them to it as long as they're not too personal. Right? That's right. That's right. We don't <laughs> want anything too personal. Sometimes there's some weirdos in there. Yeah. Right? Like, what do your feet look like? Right. Things like yeah, that. Like that stuff, we might, we might hold that for another podcast, but uh, let's dive right into it. I want to ask you, Glenn, how does code become official? So you've kind of alluded to me in the last few days here that there's, there's changes coming and it seems to be kind of like a three-year cycle of, um, of uh, revisions, I guess. What's the process? Like how, how do those meetings start? Where do the code revisions come from? Do people submit them? And then how do you guys end up approving them? Is it go to, is it like a okay. you sit around the table and raise your hand and be like, ah, yes, I approve that one. Like, how does that all happen? Yeah. Okay. Now that's a big question and yes. I'm a big talker. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to stay on track here and, and get that. All right. That's so, enough. We'll go to the next question. Yeah, next question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So it's always important. I always talk when you hear me talking about codes, you'll often hear me refer to a model code the model code, the model IRC, all these codes you see behind me, this is specifically my model code collection. Okay. And what that means is they have no authority in and of themselves. They're just a model. They're just a design. They're just a, it's like, Hey, government, take a look at this little model we created. Do you like it? That is what code is at the ICC level. Uh, and then it takes a government to say, yeah, we like your model. Now it looks good. We want to use that as our laws. And so there's two parts to this whole thing. Now, in terms of developing the internet, which, well, first, let me tell you, the governments across the country, they, I mean, code is, is amended and adopted with a lot of variety across mm -hmm. the country. Yeah. But that said, the basis and the root of all of it at this point in generally is the, the ICC. And for residential, it's certainly the IRC. Now, 
you get some places that use the uniform plumbing codes as opposed to the international plumbing code. So there are still some other organizations that have models and the government's like, mm, we like that one instead of that one. Right. But they all start with a model and then they adjust them and tweak them to their local stuff. But how does the model get made? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The model is made by people willing to con contribute. Some are there to compete. Eh, we have to fight against those guys. But the idea is it's an open and transparent process that allows anybody and everybody to contribute their ideas with no cost to creating the model code. And so how it'll start, I'll, I'll walk you through. Like right now, we have the 2021 IRC. This is the latest published code. It was just published like at the very end of last year, beginning of this year. January of 2022, like in five months, the International Code Council has a website called CDP Access. And now it, this has changed with technology. You know, obviously before technology, there were some other ways of doing it. But the way you would do it now is you go online, you create a free account, and you submit a code proposal. And then there's formatting and ways that you do that. But you would take, you know, a section that you want to change, and you don't even have to own the code. They have it in there. You just plug it pull it from their list in their program, put it in, and then you strike out what you don't want and you add with underlines what you do want. Then you have to write a reason statement to explain the reasoning and kind of justification behind it. And then you have to do a cost impact. And they've gotten a lot tighter, like more stringent on having to really explain a cost impact. Will it, will it reduce the cost of construction, have no effect on cost of construction, or will it raise the cost of construction? And I've been doing this. And last cycle, I even got an email from ICC slapping my hand saying, your cost analysis isn't full enough. You need to give us more. So that is important because one of the purposes of code is affordability. It's a minimum standard. And so you have to confess how you're gonna affect the affordability. So you put your proposals in, those will go in January 10th, they'll be due. That's the only date I have memorized at the moment. By about February, March, ICC will, will publish those proposals that anybody can submit an idea for, anybody. There's not even an age limit for it. Um, stop those older people from, from it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> and they're gonna publish that and they're gonna show everybody's ideas. Hey, here's all the ideas out there that people have for the code. And then they'll do a first hearing, it's called the committee action hearing. And in the first hearing, you as the proponent, if I, you know, I'm the, the proponent, I wrote this, go to those hearings and I'm gonna stand up in front of a committee and the committee can be anybody. Anybody can apply to be on the committee. And now there's some rules for the diversity of the committee and because they want backgrounds from all different people, but again, anybody can be on that committee. First hearing, you get up there and you're trying to convince the committee of your proposal. Other people will come up and speak in favor, ho hopefully, and then they'll go to opposition and people will speak in opposition and then you have rebuttal and, and support and rebuttal in opposition. You get two minutes to talk and then you get one minute to rebut. So you gotta convince the committee. Committee can ask questions, you can do floor modifications. So if at that moment you got some opposition, you can also make some tweaks and adjustments on, on the fly. Because often people are talking before the proposals actually come up and you're, and you're working it out in the back corners with people that are like, hey, I'm gonna speak against you, but what do you think about this idea if we tweak it a little bit? So it's a very organic process. Um, so you convince the committee, you don't convince the committee, they will give different ratings, uh, disapproved, approved as submitted, which means it's exactly how you wrote it, or approved as modified, which means you might have made a floor modification at the time. So committee will approve it. Then 
That closes, committee disapprove it, whatever. Committee makes their call. That closes, and then ICC will publish the results of the committee a few weeks, months later. They, they, they publish the results. Now it comes time for public comment period. So in the public comment period, anybody can now look at what the committee said and say, I disagree with the committee. And I'm gonna write in a public comment that just says, committee was wrong and here's some justification of why. You could say, hey, the committee was, you know, approved this, but I think that that proposal needs a little bit of adjustment and is missing some parts. I could write a public comment to modify somebody else's proposal, whether it was approved or disapproved by the committee. So it, again, it opens up your proposal to where now other people can start coming in and making tweaks and adjustments. If a proposal does not get any public comment, then whatever the committee decided, all of the proposals that did not receive a public comment, no one in the public challenged the committee. Well, those will all go to a bulk vote and they basically just become code. So it's really important people watch the public comment period. Otherwise we're just trusting this one committee of people at that one moment in time to make the decision and boom, it's in the code. Right. So if there's a public comment of any sort, it kicks it into the second hearing. When you go to the second hearing, Again, only for the ones that people contested the committee or want to change the original proposal. The second committee, you turn around now and you're speaking out to the entire audience at the hearings and you're speaking to the governmental voters. The government voters, lots of, you can be a member of ICC, all different kinds of student memberships, certified memberships, and then there's governmental memberships. I used to be one. When I worked for a government, I had a part of the governmental membership. And governmental membership they are the only ones that get to make the vote at the very end, at the final, the final hearing, the public comment hearing. And the reason for that is because they're, they're theoretically the ones with the least bias, right? Like a contractor wants to code, so it works out good, so I can sell things better to my homeowners, right? You know, manufacturers want to code in a way that may favor them. Building officials are just your, you know, your government employees just out there doing their job. They're, they're not usually having stocks in a company. They have no bias or interest to change the codes. They're also the ones that are facing the American public and having to tell them the bad news of what the code does or doesn't allow. And so those are the folks that get the exclusive final vote. And then now that we have technology and the internet and ICC has really been on top of investing in that. There's actually a third process now because it used to be only the people that could attend the hearings, only the governmental members that could get their jurisdictions to give them money, which a lot of them support this a lot, support their staff to go and do this honorable thing at the hearings. Um, but you would have, you know, sometimes a small amount of people left in the room to actually vote. And so you're not getting that full ex, you know, expression of variety across the American communities. So now there's a third process, which is the online government vote. So first it'll go to the live vote at the hearings. And then after that's concluded, they take it and they put it on an online vote that'll allow only the government members, but now even the ones that couldn't travel, they can all make their vote to it. Right. And that's as, that's as paraphrased as I could do it for you. No, that's but literally good. anyone and everyone can have a part except those government voters. They're the only ones that with that final vote. Okay. And so how big of a process is this? Like when it comes to the, like just the debt codes is all we're concerned with here. How many submissions are you dealing with? 
when you get to the, that first hearing, like, are we talking like a thousand submissions? Are we talking 10,000? Are we talking a hundred? No, no, not. I mean, if you're talking decks alone, I mean, to be honest, decks have been ignored in the codes for all of time. I mean, I got these books, hundred year old books back here with codes. We didn't really see the first deck code come until 2009. And it was just related to the ledger connection and, and that fastening schedule for ledgers. Right. So people were kind of just making it up on their own jurisdictions. You know, they still have to provide assurance to their citizens that this deck isn't going to fall down on them. But structurally, we didn't really have what's called prescriptive codes to go by. And so, you know, I would say for deck specific, because remember there's deck specific codes, which are like your prescriptive structural codes, ways. And that's where the code is giving, it's providing, it's giving you a way to build without an engineer. You might see 15 to 20 of those. And honestly, most of them are coming from the folks that I've been working with, with this debt code coalition. And then there's a handful of other ones um, where folks will bring them in. But from my memory, you know, you, you get a lot of other folks bringing proposals to, to things that relate to decks but aren't deck specific, you know, like stairs and handrails and guards and ramps and mm. all of those proposals, which yes, there can be many, many of those proposals. Well, those are still going to have an effect on the decks. Um, so that pops a question in my head that I don't so actually it's know. Kind the of answer a crap like, are the, are the stair I, codes for interior use the same as exterior use? I'd actually don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. You're stairs right. are okay. stairs are stairs. Okay. Now there are exceptions and clarifiers in the code where you may get some, you know, an exception, like there's, there's an exception now that was new to the 2021 um, that says for which stairs and ramps have to comply with code. And that was always, you know, wasn't completely nailed down and defined. So you get inconsistent interpretations from governments across the country and so what was more consistently clarified in the 2021 was, was that uh, stairs that are not serving a building, a deck, or a patio, a porch, um, do not have to comply with code. And p- some people still, there may be some tweaks to that for 2024, but the point of it was to say, okay, if you have stairs in your backyard going, you know, you got a retaining wall and you've got some landscape stairs going down to, you know, a little patio area down there, we're not going to regulate those with code. It basically made it, made it clear, like, yep, don't go there inspectors, unless it's serving a deck and people are, you're funneling a larger expected density of people to be taking these stairs to a deck. You know, that's kind of like, if you build it, they will come. Okay. Those stairs have a higher probability of hazard, higher probability of use, higher probability of hazard. Okay. We want those to code. Interesting. You got some deck stairs back in your yard. You know, no, we're not. Um, but I mean, I can tell you, I'm, I'm working for Denver as a consultant, helping them update their codes to 2021. And one of the amendments that they're going to do is they're going to strike that because they believe all stairs should be regulated. Right. So just an example real quick of where a city will go, we don't like your model. Right. Okay. I've had that question. That's interesting to hear because I've had that question before in my past, in my building days. I know I've worked in backyards where they've got these big, you know, hardscaped, like rough cut boulder steps going down to the backyard that are clearly not <laughs> like they're all different sizes and shapes and everything. I was yeah. like, how I got to walk up and down these things 55 times over the next few days here. And yet my stairs have to be on point within a certain 
like right. parameter, right? Yep. And I was like, how does this work? But I guess, yeah. I guess because they don't care about those ones. Yeah. No, it's a balance between, yeah, it's a balance between liberty and safety. Yeah. Right. I mean, we could bubble wrap the world and we'll be super safe, but will we have our liberties and freedoms? Right. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons I really love the code to just get on another thing is I, I'm very American. I very much believe in our freedoms and our liberties and supporting and protecting those liberties of everyone else. And so being able to work in minimum code, really, I get the opportunity to be that voice and say, hey, look, yeah, those stairs might be a little more dangerous, but you know what? They're in the private backyard. They're not being used, you know, for the mailman coming up to, to the front steps, you know, or mm -hmm. the pizza delivery person coming up the steps to your deck. Right. You know, so, hey, let's back off a He's little off. on that. Yeah, for sure. And of course, humans, we're naturally not going to all agree on the balance between liberty and safety. For sure. Yeah. So it sounds to me like the opportunity for, let's say, contractors to have some influence in the code is there. You're not you're not seeing a whole bunch of submissions. Yeah, so it's oh, not like yes. they're, it's not like they're trying to, you know, stick out on this like garbage dump full of submissions. If they submit something, there's a good chance it's going to see itself right to at least the first hearing. And you said they can do that simply by going to there's a website that you mentioned. Yeah, you can go to uh, it's CDP access. I don't know exactly, but the uh, West or ICC's website is iccsafe.org. Okay. Now, you don't see a lot of just builders involved with this at this level. Most of the people that do submit proposals are people that represent the builders. Right. Like you have representatives of you know North America or uh, Home Builders Associations, sure. and yeah. I mean. Right there's an association for every possible industry yeah. out there. And what happens is those industries, those folks are busy working in their industry. So they feed the information and the support to their representative. And then that representative attends the hearings because I mean, there is a lot to it. It, it takes time. It takes a lot of investment to do it. Investment of your time. Sure. Um, yeah, I guess so that's why that's one of the big right. messages I'm always sending to the builders is like, help me take your message. Okay. So is that your, is that your suggestion that if somebody has something they want to kind of suggest, should they use you as that kind of avenue to get their voices heard? You would like them to contact you directly? Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, there you go. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. So quit bitching and complaining. About I mean, the that's the thing guys. Like I'm doing this work. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing this work for you. I'm I already have like 20 something proposals related to decks that are that I've got ready to go through. I'm sending those through NADRA. I get NADRA's code committee. They take a look at it and decide is are this going to be a NADRA proposal. Um, sometimes there's proposals I got to move forward on my own. Uh, as an independent, I can do a little more controversial stuff, um, and I don't have to play politics. And I don't mean mm -hmm. that in a negative way, but it's just the truth. It's yeah. just the truth of the matter. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I'm there. I'm the voice. I'm doing it now. The the catch with that guys is you can't, I don't need feedback from the 2015 IRC. And this is why I'm always pushing my education. Obviously I make a living with sharing education, but if you don't know the 2021 codes, how can you help me make the 2024 codes? How can you contribute to them? Because you're working on something that's old. And right now the 2015 is, is one of the leading adopted codes as the model across this country that's then slightly adapted. And so that's the problem is builders, they know the code. I get, I, you know, I'll get people that push back and argue with me online when I'm trying to give some advice and tips and, you know, sell my wares, whatever. 
about how they know the code so well. And it's like, yeah, you do, you know, your local code, which is like, I developed that eight years ago. Yeah, You know, that's the 2015, we did that in 2013. So there's that first step. And that's why the people in the code hearings, you know, this book just came out this year and literally you have one year to get studied up on it and then prepare your proposals for the next one. Right. And so you have to be way ahead of the game. And, and it's hard, I mean, it's hard to expect builders you know, to be there. It's tough. That's why naturally builders haven't had a huge voice for a lot of, a long time in, in the codes. Right. Okay. I've got another question that's always been on my mind a little bit because I hear people say these words all the time, but how influential can product manufacturers actually be in the creation of these codes? So my example that I'm going to, that I hear more often is there's a lot of hardware that from let's say Simpson Strong Tie, which is probably the most prevalent brand of deck connector and fastener and hardware and whatnot. There's a lot of that stuff that's kind of made its way into codes, whether it's at the IRC level or at just at the municipal level. How influential can those guys be? Because I've heard people say like, oh, of course they're going to require that now because Simpson's at the table. Is that is that a fallacy yeah. or is there yeah. some influence they have? All right, so this is one of those ones that I better not find anybody cutting and clipping this video to take the quote they want out. <laughs> you got it. It's one of those times. No fake news. We got to have the. Yeah. You got to have the whole story. Yes, yeah. absolutely influential, without a doubt. You know why? They have resources. You know right. they. It takes a lot of time and energy to put together code proposals to go to these downtown convention center areas with expensive hotels to spend that time and that energy to do the research, right? Simpson Strong Tie, they can do engineering research, testing research. They can find answers that no one else is willing to pay the money to find the answers. Right. Now, of course, they want a return on their investment. They're finding answers so they can create a solution so that then they can sell that solution and, and be rewarded for it. There's no shame in that, nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah. Um, I will say there is a lot of misplaced blame to Simpson at the national level. I have worked with them directly, hand in hand. I mean, I have good friends at Simpson. They have contributed wonderful things to the process. I'll pitch one right to you. 2015 code, we got blocking over a beam, used to have to be full depth blocking, and we got it reduced to only 60% blocking. You know how that happened? I looked at Simpson and said, hey Simpson, your hangers are count for rotational support of the end of a joist, but they don't go full depth. You know, you can use an LU two eight on a two by 10, right? Yep. And it's, it's short of the top. And so I asked them, how come we have to use full depth rotational blocks then? And they, they were then able to contribute information about the testing protocols, blah, 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 blah. And it revealed, Hey, well then cool. If 60% is good for the hanger. And then we put forth the idea for the 60% block, we used the justification of the hanger, and now it's helpful to everybody. And if Simpson wasn't there, I wouldn't have learned that information. Fastenmaster as well with the ledger lock products, got to give a huge nod to them. They, I mean, I sit in a room with competitors, with Fastenmaster and Simpson, both that have structural screws, both that are contributing to try to create this stuff. Right. Um, so yes, yes, product manufacturers, organizations that are powerful, that have money, that have resources, where they have lots of membership, 
And they, yes, they are incredibly powerful. One of the things I always say in my classes, just because I'm a truth talker, code is developed three ways with science, with statistics and with salesmen. Okay. And indeed, sometimes code gets in from really good salesmen. Right. That's why we redo it every three years. Right. Can I ask a question about that mid-span blocking um, thing you brought up there? I'm just curious. What is the what is the reason no, for no it? code? No code talk. Why don't you talk about me? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> what is the reason for it needing to be above the beam no, as opposed sorry, to as opposed? So you got a you got a let's say you have a deck 12 feet out. The beam's at 11. Let's say, what's is it required to have blocking over the beam and in the middle, in the, in the actual mid span of the deck, or what's the advantage to doing it over the beam versus just doing it elsewhere? Um, so big question. And of course I have video education that goes in depth that explains all of this, but um, it's about rotation. It's that the hanger at the ledger, the hanger or the blocking over a beam, those are your bearing locations. And then as well as like at the end of a cantilever where you have a rim attached, yep. there's schedules in the code for how many fasteners need to go into that. It's all about joist rotation. You've got a joist. You guys will love my fine home building article in my know the code column. This is going to be in completely answered in depth to you in the next edition. I'll hint at what the subject is about. Okay. So I have just recently been dealing with this, but it's about the tension and compression cords of the joist. They don't like being under tension and compression. You know, the top is under compression, bottom's under tension when that joist is standing. Yeah. They don't like that. Nobody likes to be under stress. So they try to lay over and relax that tension and compression, and then they fail. That's how they deflect. So we want to hold, we want to hold those joists upright and make them stress. One of my, I say a joist not stressing is a joist deflecting. So the block is like the supervisor standing there saying, you stay standing up and keep working, buddy. And then the, the joist wants to rotate all along its length, but it can, based on the width of it, it can handle resisting a little rotation, but where's that ultimately going to be stopped at the ends at the bearing points. Now bearing block in mid span only required by the code when you have a, a thickness to height ratio that's going to be greater than a two by 12, because now you're too tall and the width, that small inch and a half width of your joist can't resist that rotating over and you bridge block. Um, but bridge blocking is a great way to stiffen up the deck and take out the deflection above code. And it's because you're, you're keeping the joist working. You're keeping them stressing. Okay. Thank you for answering that. I had to cut myself off. I we'll have to, yeah. Guess I'll have to actually. I'll, <laughs> guess I'll actually have to read the books that I buy. Yeah, exactly. Right. So they don't just come in packages anymore. <laughs> yeah. so. You have to take the plastic off that yeah. one. Okay, we're gonna get into some of the questions that we've had uh, that were fed to us through the Instagram community for the most part. A little bit on Facebook as well. And again, mm-hmm. if anybody's watching mm-hmm. live oh. on Instagram, feel free to answer or ask a question uh, on the fly here as well. But the first question we have comes from a contractor that's actually local to us. We do it landscaping. Asks, when does a pergola go from being decorative to needing to be engineered? And how do you determine spans on pergolas when there are no codes? I feel like this question is amazing. It comes up all the time. I mean, I'm going to take the easy out with the first question. When does it go from being decorative to being need to be engineered? You're going to have to talk to your local building department. And then they're probably going to also base a lot of that on what the state standards are for design professionals. Some states will allow an architect, a licensed architect to do residential 
structural like engineering up to certain sizes and stories of a, of a house. Others will require it just be an engineer. Um, but in general, it's an overhead structure, right? I mean, it's something full of heavy pergola. Was it, is it just some flimsy little one by twos or is it steel? Right. Is it concrete? You know, does it, is right. it heavy timber beams? Like, so people just say pergola and want an answer. It's like, well, that could be a real gentle little trellis over your gate that no one cares about, or it could be something pretty massive that if it collapsed, you're going to hurt some people. And so your building department is going to look at it and say, it's a structure. And if it's of a magnitude where like, yeah, like this isn't just a little garden trellis for some vines, you know, um, over a bench seat or something, then someone needs to prove it's going to work, right? Like we don't want to have people out there selling overhead structures to people that aren't going to hold up, right? And so most of the time, I mean, and I can't say most of the time because you never know what human beings are going to do when they're in that position at a building department. The building department I worked at for 13, 14 years, 13, something, 13 years, um, we did permits on trellises, shade structures, pergolas, whatever you name it, right? It's a non-watertight overhead structure. Now, as far as how you figure out how to approve it without an engineer, that goes back to the comfort level again of those building departments. Some of those folks don't want to put their neck out at all. And, and, my, and my, I call them book readers. Yep. And, and I, you know, I'm sure some of them hate me for it, but I call them right out in my class. If all you do in this job is read a book, then you're not a professional and my 19-year-old daughter can do your job. The job of a building official is to have the, the knowledge and the expertise to have professional discretion. The word approved comes up in the code on something like a third of the pages. And that means acceptable to the building official. So the building official should be exercising professional discretion. Otherwise, I say they're not a professional. Nonetheless, before I lose followers for that comment. <laughs> um, so... How did we do it? I'll just tell you how we did it, right? I would utilize, what do I have? I have horizontal members. What can I go to in the code? Ceiling joists. There's a table in, this, in the code for spanning a single joist, a ceiling joist. This would be prescriptive roof construction, you know, like if you don't use trusses. Right. So a few people are doing that these days. And that, that knowledge is getting lost. But ceiling joists. In the live load table that tells you what type of structures, how much load do they need to resist? That's the first question, right? Like, what is going to be loading this structure so it doesn't collapse on us? Right. You don't get pergolas in there, but you do get a line that says attic with no storage. And then you get another one that's attic with storage. An attic with no storage, 10 pound per square foot live load. Just, you know, hey, the insulators are going to crawl up there at some point in time to insulate. Someone may anecdotally be getting up there for something. Yeah. Attic with storage is when you have a certain amount of area. And so we would use ceiling joists for attic with storage, 10 PSF live load. And that gave us the comfort that like, all right, if people have some vines on this or a hanging swing or hanging pots, you know, it's going to, it's got some live load assigned to whatever span we give them. If we had shade members up top that were less than three inches apart, we utilize the plumbing code. I know that sounds crazy, right? Well, in regions with snow, your vent through the roof has a risk of frost closure from snow blocking your plumbing vent. And the code will tell you, you have to upsize it to at least three inches. And so we said, okay, well, if three inches is large enough that snow won't 
won't crest over and block it as, as you know, it can, right? But probability, then three inches is good for the, for the pergola. And if somebody promoted or proposed a pergola shade structure with less than three inch spaces, we would say, ooh, snow can bridge that based on this plumbing code. And then we would utilize rafter tables for that now the rafter tables would include a snow load. You know, and that's just kind of one example of how we, we at least got through the ceiling joists. This is an example of something that perhaps could be a future code addition. Right. And it would all start with setting a load for the pergola. We don't know how to build a pergola unless we know the weight we expect it to carry. Right. Yeah, it's it, I, we get the question all the time, too, which is super generic, is how much is a pergola? And the, the answer is the same as what you're kind of trying to say, too. It's like these things can be these things can be anything. Right. They can be small. They can be big. They can be built out of yeah. 10 different materials. They can be like, yeah. there's way too many questions to give a generic answer to. So, um, yeah, it's probably exactly. similar. Uh, next question yeah. from VB decking LLC. Uh, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to fill in some blanks here, I think, but handrails on stairs, inspectors and code require them. Homeowners don't want them more of a statement than a question, but is there any, is there any scenario where, yeah. I mean, this is, this is going to be kind of more to the the local department, I think. But is there any scenario or any argument that one could come up with that would actually remove the requirement to have uh, railing on stairs where it's, let's obviously not on a tall deck and for lower <laughs> decks, we don't need them anyway. But what about like a deck that's say three or four feet tall and the homeowner's insisting they don't want it for some reason. Is there even an argument to be had there? Or are you going to lose that every time? Going to lose it every time. Yeah. Yeah. Now the, the, the one you would win that just got clarified in 2021 is those stairs we talked about that are, you know, and that was a big part of like some retaining wall stairs or, or flagstone stairs in the yard. You want me to mount a big handrail coming out of the ground for that? No. Right. So that's where you could have an argument, but if it's serving a deck or a porch, you know, and, and wordplay in that is another problem in the code. Um, but no, if it's serving that and you have four rises or more, you will need a handrail on at least one side. In, in one of my classes, I have this great example photo. It, it's this track development. All the houses look the same. And the concrete steps were this concrete sidewalk running along the garage and up to the front door, just poured by the concrete folks. In one example, they poured like 24 inch deep treads, which is not a landing. So it's still just a tread in a stairway. And they did a bunch of 24 inch stairs all the way up. And then another one, the concrete people formed it up with three normal steps to a landing, three, three rises to a landing, three rises to a landing. And simply it was the exact same elevation change. Everything was the same. Concrete guys probably didn't even know what they were doing, you know, in this. I don't mean to down talk them, but concrete folks aren't always talking about code. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was the difference. The one required a handrail to get mounted on the side of the garage wall. And the other one, because they did no more than three rises in a series. So if you got a deck that's six rises off, put in an intermittent landing halfway and go three rises and then three rises. That would get you around. That's really about it. Do you, are you still required to have some sort of guardrail then for, for fall hazard when you're that high though? Like that sounds like a genius way to get around some things, but you must still need some sort of guardrail. You do. Well, see, that's the trick here. That's where this isn't wordplay. This is really important. Guards and handrails are like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. They're often in the same sandwich, yeah. but they are not the same thing. Yeah. Bam. Come on. That was a great, that was awesome. <laughs> that was, that was a pretty good analogy. But that's the problem. No. So 
So, so the question was handrails. And so I'm talking to you about how you eliminate the handrail. That's the graspable part. Right. And its function is to help assist you as you go over this obstacle. Yep. Now, a guard is to help you from accidentally falling off of the stairs. Yep. And they're going to be different. The handrail is related to the obstacle. How difficult is this obstacle you have to surmount? How many times do you have to lift your feet up? If you have four inch rises and you got to lift your foot four times for that 16 inch rise, some people might need a little assistance doing mm -hmm. that. But at 16 inches of fall, we're not so you know worried about protecting you from that. So whereas that's where I'm getting to is guards, doesn't matter about how many times you move your legs up and down. It's about how high are you if you fall off that edge. Right. So the worst ones are the stairs that are like four, that are four rises that are seven inches and you're going up to a 28 inch high deck and they don't want guards and guards aren't required, but it's four, seven inch rises. And now a handrail is required. Those are the tough designs. Okay. Got it. I think that's really good. Yeah. All right. Next question we have. Yeah. And handrails are where all the trouble comes in. Yes. People don't have problems with guards by stairs. No one. It's the handrail because of all the rules, the return, the graspability, the continuity, the size of it. Um, and that that gets trickier. But, hey, kudos to the product manufacturers out there to just drop a nice word to them. These railing manufactured guard uh, companies have been really good lately. I've seen more and more of them producing a handrail component now yep. that matches with their systems. Yes. So good job to those folks. And I'm not sure what, whether that question was referring to just specifically graspable handrails or if it was guardrails or what it was, there wasn't a lot of detail there, but you've answered both questions very well. So that's good. Uh, uh, don't say guardrail. Guard. Well, yeah, guard. Now, maybe in Canada, it's different. just guard. But yeah. I fight this so hard. It's guard because a guard can be anything. Doesn't have to have a rail. Can be a built-in barbecue. Sure, guard. Interesting. Hmm. Now my head spinning. Like, what else can we? What else can we put in there? Guard. I don't want a rail here. Uh, that's fine. Just put in six barbecues and a smoker, and you're good to go. Um, <laughs> Next question. You'll That's never how you upsell, guys. Right? You'll never <laughs> guess who this next question is coming from. But how long until the steel framing gets its own section? From Scott Kelly at Precision Construction. I know. I get that from a lot of folks. You know what I say? How long until you start contributing and helping write that code? Oh, for? Hey, Scott! Snap! Right? Like how long? <laughs> huh? How long until you make a cheesecake? I don't know, but yeah. when you decide to make a cheesecake, you're probably going to have one. That's right. There you go. So, I mean, I'll be honest, guys. I've never framed a steel frame deck. You know, I, I my last deck I built for an American consumer was 16 years ago. Um, I've inspected a lot of steel decks, and usually the builders were so nervous and scared that they weren't going to get that, that they came full of documentation and plans. And as an inspector, I really was just like, okay, you got all your engineering and plans. I'm just going to like look at what you've got here and see if you've done it right. So, I mean, quite honestly, I know what I know, and I don't, I know what I don't. I'm not an expert in steel framing to be the guy to write that whole proposal for it. I, I need a village. I need the deck builders from across the country to, to help share their knowledge and what they know. So I don't see anybody else putting steel framing in the code except for perhaps a steel framing company. But a lot of those are proprietary 
And so they don't want it in the code because if you buy their product, they may not want it in the code, right? Because if you buy their product, it doesn't have to be in the code. They give you all the supporting material. Right. You put it in the code and you make it standardized. And now you start to open up the market share. Right. So I don't know if they would come with it. I think it would really be up to a builder or you know an organization that represents builders to do it. Boy, that's like... Before you said that line, I was thinking like, well, why wouldn't Fortress be doing this? And then and then you made it's a very like, good exactly, point as to right? why they would not be doing this. Yeah, they, they're going to give you all of that stuff. Right. And keep that stuff yeah. secret. That makes a lot of sense. Scott's clapping back. Uh, oh, Scott is. And that's not, you know, I mean, I don't, that's not bad of them to do that. You know, again, that's where like the code People think the code is about prohibiting because the and, and that's because the only thing they know about code is when they hear about what's prohibited from the inspector failing something or from the red line plans. Their job isn't to sit there and tell you all the different things you could do. So people get this idea that the code is so prohibitive. The code, far more of the pages in this thousand something page book, I mean, more than three fourths of that book are giving. They're saying you don't have to find an engineer or a manufacturer that provides all the specific support. We're going to give you this cookbook and you can go do this on your own. Um, and so, you know, it, again, it's just, it's not bad that these folks aren't trying to get their product in the cookbook. Um, but that's why, you know? Yeah. It makes sense now that you say it. So, and I also like how you're wording that here now too, because I'll be honest, I think myself included always kind of looks at, building codes as the restrictions. The Here's barriers. what they won't let me do, yeah. right? I can't span this more than eight feet. Yeah. But then on the next conversation, as we just heard, they're asking, well, how far can I go with the pergola though? <laughs> right? And so and it's like, like, I don't know. It didn't have a code and therefore you have to ask yeah. these questions yeah. and then you can't get answers and then you're frustrated and then you're paying an engineer. Well, the code is avoiding all of that by just telling you what you can do, yeah. not what you can't do. Exactly. Yeah, that's, I love it. Exactly. So Scott Kelly's love, in here right I now. I love the analogy of the cookbook. Yeah, yeah the cookbook. that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Scott the, Kelly's the in here right now. He's taking a shot the at you. The cookbook is the best. Oh. Scott Kelly's in here. He's taking a shot at you right now. He's saying, he's saying he'll contribute to the codes faster than Glenn got on this podcast. <gasps> Shots fired. Bum, bum, bum. That's fair. That's fair, Scott. Yeah. That's fair. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. And I'll take your help, man, because you know things other people don't. I don't know it. I can't do it without you. Yep. Yeah. And, and to... You think anybody at those ICC hearings is up to speed on steel framing? No, it's up to us to share that with them. Yeah, exactly. But I'm going to double down on the analogy because I really need folks to change their mindset about the IRC, specifically getting, you know, talking about residential codes and the IRC, that cookbook analogy. You got a Better Home and Gardens cookbook on there and there's some recipe for breaded chicken breasts. And you're like, well, I don't want to use panko breadcrumbs, right? I don't want to limit my span to what the code provides me. I want to use some other wacky co coating, but I don't know if it's going to taste good. Like, ooh, is it, and, and at what temperature do I cook it at? Right. Yeah. I might need to get a different expert. I might need another source of information, yeah, yeah. another cookbook, or maybe I hire a chef right? A chef is like an engineer. The, the code is like, you can make a meal for your family and they can enjoy it and be safe, but it's going to be pretty basic, like this basic deck. Mm, love it. Mm. I, I'm going to start calling these cookbooks. I'm not even kidding. Cause yeah. that's, a, it's a great way to think about it. Cause as you were saying <laughs> that, I'm thinking like, yeah, what if the, what if the recipe didn't tell you what the uh, temperature the oven is supposed to be at? 
Like yeah. you just be, that'd be the first thing you'd be like, why doesn't it tell me what temperature the oven's supposed to be? Exactly. <laughs> so that's right? a, it's a great yeah. analogy. I love no, it. it'd be it'd be flawed. Yeah. And there's flaws in that still here, where we can't build technically. Technically, no one wants to hear this. You can't build a deck completely without an engineer. That yeah. we don't have the full prescriptive. We're missing things in the ingredients. We're missing things in the cookbook instructions. But yet we kind of guess, right? We go, oh, 350 is probably good enough. And that's how everybody's been getting by for all the time. That's how building officials, you know, lateral loads are a huge one where it's like, okay, put some knee braces up and yeah, that feels pretty secure. Or, yeah. you know, guards, you know, guards are like guessing the temperature of the oven. Like, well, I, I think it's hot enough. I'm pushing on those guards. It, yeah. it seems pretty strong. <laughs> right. So, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what do we got here? So actually, I'll tell you a story while Bryce reads that question here. I, I'm actually very impressed that the city that we reside in, that our one store is in, there, the building department actually called me probably, I would say, about two months ago to ask us if we were starting to get many requests for steel framing or if we were doing anything with steel framing. And this was something proactive they did. I had not approached them, to be honest. We were stalking already, already oh. since April. We were yeah. stalking it, and not once had I gone to the city to, to, be, to be proactive myself to say, like, hey, uh, when a job happens here, how okay are you guys going to be with this when we submit the permit? And, but they were actually proactive, proactive enough to, to call me first and be like, are you guys doing anything with this? Is, are you seeing a demand for it? And we were, I was kind of like, well, yeah, we're stocking it. So we're hoping to do something with it. <laughs> um, but now I've been able, to, been able to put them in, in touch with our fortress rep, who's now communicating with our municipality, with our city to share the engineering awesome. that they do have right now. Right. So I was, I was pretty impressed because I don't, I don't typically, um, think of them as being kind of forward thinking and getting ahead of the game. But I was very impressed that they reached out to, to start the conversation on that for sure. Uh, our fortress rep is in here. Speaking of which, no, that's really cool. this, this guy, and he's saying the CCRR report we have seems to have more traction in the U S this is where we need to make inroads in Canada. So yeah, they're engineering. They're saying they're having better luck in, in the U S talking to different jurisdictions than they are in Canada. So I wonder why that is. <clears throat> and it's kind of funny. Cause yeah. I did, when well, I talked about, I mean, a good, you could, when I talk to somebody at the city here, uh, oh, I was just going to say, yeah, <laughs> go ahead. I'm going first. Go ahead. Jeez, go Glenn, ahead. this is my podcast. Yeah. I'm going <laughs> <first>. <laughs> but no, <laughs> but no we, uh, that's it. I'm leaving. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I remember that those words coming from uh, the city here as well, saying like, that's great. They've submitted some engineering. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's using us engineers and whatever else. And, and so we're going to have to get them to do some more work up here in Canada. And like for me being on the outside looking in, I'm like, what do you, so what, like the steel gets weaker when it gets North, like yeah. <laughs> when it should be okay, but I get that they have to do their due diligence yeah. anyway. So sorry, you go ahead. Yeah. I, well, I just want to make a quick double down on your comment about, about manufacturers representatives, man, those guys and gals are awesome. Yes. They're great. Utilize them. The builders utilize them. The inspectors that if you ever, if any of them ever see this podcast, utilize them. They are there to help make sure that their products are used effectively. If their products are installed correctly, used effectively, meet the code, meet ultimately the warranties that's that's going to look great on their product yeah. right if the product's getting installed incorrectly and inspectors are turning it down and failing it then homeowners are hearing about how failed inspection because of this new product we use and sometimes all this goes sour and there's a representative that's like i would have helped you all understand this if you would have just contacted me and, and gotten me involved with this party 
Um, and that's one of the things when, you know, going back to someone talking about and the, and the whole thing about, you know, Simpson or manufacturers and what, what's their involvement with code and, and, inst- and inspectors kind of relying on those products. Well, that's kind of to be expected, right? Like there's not a lot of codes for decks. Yeah. None of us really know what we're doing. We're pushing on guards and going, that feels good, yeah. right? And we're all doing that. Come along with a product with a manufacturer that has invested time to test it, to create load capacity charts for it. And then they're going to try to say, hey, look how easy you can use this and you can have assurance and you don't have to just guess the temperature of the oven. So it's like right. reading a, in, you know, a cookbook that's going to just, you know, like, you know, those cookbooks that tell you to use certain brands of their of their packaged ingredients because yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. it's like yeah that ingredient you know put some yogurt in your bread well i don't have to learn how the yogurt was built i trust someone made yogurt and right. they know how to do that and yeah. so now i can just throw that into the ingredients and it's one less thing i have to worry about mm-hmm. so products are good that way they create solutions for code use the products reps does uh does yogurt in bread do is it is that a, something you'd recommend glenn I like making bread. So, yeah, you can put yogurt in bread. I haven't heard that one before, but that's good. Um, okay, next question. I don't know if you're going to have an answer for this, but we'll ask it because it was asked. This is from TC Dex. He's out of Utah. Uh, should I worry about my glue laminated beams coming delaminated if not well-maintained? Uh, if you're using interior glue lambs, then I, then I would say don't do that. Um, but definitely there's exterior grade glue lambs. Wood material now for decks has gotten very clear that it's got to be decay resistant, and that would be via a naturally durable lumber. There's species defined in the code for that, you know, your typical redwood cedar, and there's a couple other ones, uh, or preservative treated in accordance with the AWPA standards. And so technically, your glue lamb needs to be of that type. It needs to be of a decay resistant type and, you know, suitable for the exterior environment. And so you know, really those, when I faced glue lambs and, and when I built with glue lambs way back in the day, we used um, Alaskan cedar glue lambs. There was an outfit here that was producing those. And then in my time as an inspector, we would make sure, you know, we, we expected that they used the proper glue lamb. Um, people using LVLs, I've seen that go wrong for so, for decades, people using LVLs, laminated veneer lumber in exterior conditions. And those are not designed for that until recently. There's been a, a new, a new, uh, product out now that's an LVL for exterior use. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, yes, I've seen LVLs definitely delaminate and have major problems, but they were not the type designed for outside. Okay. Next question from Jay Biebs. Uh, it, and this is, I believe this is a homeowner or DIY guy up in our other market, Saskatoon that asked is stair tread, are stair cool. treads, is stair tread run measured from fascia or from the front? Let me, Come on, you can do this, Shane. I'm gonna. I was trying to maybe like reword as I go to make it make more sense, but I'm not sure that I'm able to. So I'm just gonna read it as is. <laughs> is stair tread run measured from fascia or from know, the but... front face of the nosing one tread higher? Yeah, it's nosing to nosing. Yes. So whatever the four nosing is defined in chapter two in the IRC, and it's loosely defined as like the foremost projection of a tread or the upper landing of a stairway. So. Um, that's where you would, you would take whatever that leading projection is. You know, people are coming up the stairs, that leading projection, you drop vertically straight down from that. And then you measure horizontally to the next projection. And then of course there's more 
to it when you get into stair geometry. Um, but that's one place folks often do go wrong is that upper landing, that the landing is that where it steps off down to your first tread, that edge is a nosing and it often doesn't match the rest of the treads. And so a nosing also has to have a projection where it extends beyond that fascia or face behind it um, and, until you get to a certain size and then you don't have to have the projection. But the nosing projection has to have that same three eighths inch uniformity with all the other nosing projections, just like rise and run have to amongst each other. And so where people, the notorious mistake I see happen all the time is people will build the deck and the landing with a wrapped in deck board where the fascia comes all the way up to the top of the deck board and there's no nosing projection. And then they build their stair treads and they build that with a riser underneath the stair tread and the nosing has a projection. And now you don't have that three eighths inch consistency. And so that's, that's may get called out. You're saying if you do, if you build that way, I mean, it should, so yeah, you, it I, should. I mean, again, if, if whether an inspector calls it out or not, doesn't relieve the builder from their liability of it, right. which is something I, I won't break right. into now, but like pleasing the inspector just gets you by that one day. Right. Right. That's right, it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Next question is, Oh, this is from, Oh, this is a good one. Oh yeah. This I is, wonder where this one came this from. One's, <laughs> Guy has a really good brain on his head. This has all been good questions. Right? Any questions a good question. So this one's from me. Um, what are your thoughts on screw piles? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on helical screw piles for footings? Is there an acceptance or pushback in, are you seeing acceptance or pushback in a lot of markets? I know up here we, we see a little bit of pushback from, from helical screw piles, but for the most part, they, they're pretty easy to get past through. Who's the idiot that asked that question? Right. <laughs> no, probably, probably the same guy doesn't know how to wear his hat the um, right way. So, <laughs> no, helical piers is what we call them in our region here, you know, helical piers, yep. um, screw piles. That's definitely another term. And then there's another product out there called a ground screw yeah. that I'm seeing more and more of. Yes. And that's that's a little different type of thing. And then you've got pin foundations. There's a couple manufacturers, one very well-known one, and then there's some other folks coming on the scene doing these pin foundations. Yep. Um, luckily, you, luckily, the deck industry has representation at the hearings since the 2015. And in that representation, what we made sure was included is the section for footings Quoting it loosely, it says, you know, like all decks shall be supported on footings in accordance with table, blah, 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 or other approved foundation systems. Right. And we put that specifically in there as a nod to the building officials to go to, to be open minded. Now, any alternative under the sun can be approved by code under section R04.11, alternative means and methods. And it's like the provisions of this code are not intended to prohibit any means of construction, material, et cetera, et cetera, not specifically prescribed. It's basically like the cookbook saying, hey, look, you can make other stuff than what's in this book. You just have to validate that you're not gonna poison your family. Right. right. And so yeah. we don't, that could be said the one time in the administrative chapter 104.11, but it's easily forgotten because it makes your job harder. As a building official, you know, it's so much easier for me to just like 
do what's in the book and I'm done. I got to start reviewing ES reports. I have to start thinking. And again, those are the folks that need to retire out of the business point Mm -hmm. blank because your job is to, is to represent your community with all the possible freedoms and liberties that the market provides and makes available for them. Just keep them safe. So nonetheless, though, there is this movement over the last many code cycles. You can see more and more and more little statements throughout the code about, Hey, an alternative is allowed here, guys. And so we have that now right in the section on deck foundations. So it's point blank to the building official. Yes, you can approve other structural systems. Um, so that's the code. That's as far as the code goes with these. And um, I'm not sure it needs to go any further at this time until those things became more common marketplace, right? Like your Better Homes and Garden Cookbook is going to have your more common dishes for the American cuisine. Yeah. So that's generally what you see get in the code book. Um, but no, they're easy to approve if you have a building official willing to do their job and serve their community. Perfect. I'm just saying that point blank places that can't use those products. It's, it may be because there's been some historical experience where there've been failures with it or something that is a chance of that, but I'm going to tell you the majority of the time it's closed-minded folks in a position of authority. And I'm sorry, but I'll call out my own industry on that. Yep. Perfect. Uh, we have a couple more questions here. So I just want to shout out one more time to Instagram. If anybody has questions for Glenn off the Instagram live, do it now or forever. Hold your breath. Cause he doesn't want you to email him later. Just, no, just he kidding. Want that at all. Yeah. <laughs> He's straight up said email in my inbox. Yes. Uh, next question. I'm all not you sure. got to remember is xcodes.com. Dexcodes.com. And you got me. Well, that's easy. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next question. I'm not sure I understand it myself, but uh, it's from Krista Kendall on Instagram. And she says, are ledger boards a must? And so I don't know if she's, does does that make sense to you? Like are ledger boards acquired is what she was asking. No, no. I mean, Hey, right. That's the first thing I was saying. R104.11. The only provisions of this code are not intended to prohibit any method of construction. So ledgers are not required. They are the common way people build decks. Right. Um, and so, but you know, that may be speaking to the idea of a freestanding deck. There's been a big movement towards freestanding decks. Yeah. Understandably so, because the ledger provisions in the code are completely horrible and infeasible. They need work, but they need resources to in order to get work on them. Right. Um, so no, you can build freestanding decks, but just guys, I, I've been seeing this huge movement of people just going, hey, freestanding deck, here we go and not looking at the huge can of worms in both foundations in the backfill region of the existing foundation and the bigger issue of lateral loads um, and lateral restraint on a deck. Freestanding decks are a big issue with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The other scenario I wondered if Uh, she was maybe referring to was maybe what if we have a solid uh, rim band on the house and could you just technically hang her off it instead of laminating a second ledger against it? If it was already a solid two by 10 or two by 12 or something on the house, is it, is it, is there ever a scenario where that makes sense? <laughs> Did you stump them? There's, there's an, there's an infinite amount of scenario. Well, I don't want to go off on a tangent and I always like to say that, you know, I haven't seen every scenario. So I always try to stay open-minded. I don't like to be super definitive about things. I can be definitive, like minimum guard height or something. Right. But Mm -hmm. when you get into structural design, too many people start getting definitive and they start stepping on other people's liberties because of that. So I won't say definitively either way. Yes, there could be scenarios. Now, the big reason then would, the, the big 
hurdle to trying to do a design where you hang her straight off the band is all about the water resistant barrier on the house mm-hmm. and all about how mm-hmm. you terminate the cladding properly. You know, back when I was building decks, shamefully guys, I was in the era in my region where we just slapped it up on the house over brick, over stucco, over siding, over vinyl siding. I got plenty of skeletons in my closet because back then nobody cared. Nobody paid attention. Um, those days are over. It'd be like a doctor stitching. You've got your arm cut off and they don't take your shirt off before they stitch your arm back on. This is the, your shirts, like the cladding, like the siding. Um, and so that stuff's got to get removed. So you get a structural to structural connection. And so now you start breaking into the issue of water. And I always, I always say one of my lines is flashing is structural. Flat, the, the first failure of bad flashing is a structural failure. Yeah. So flashing is structural. And so that's the real trouble with that. And it comes up where people like you, you can't hang a beam off of a ledger anymore. If you're fastening the ledger, according to the, the cookbook in the code, because it doesn't know how much weight that beam is. So it just says you can't put beams on it. So if you don't get an engineer to then create a connection there that can, can analyze the load of the beam, the direction the code is giving and the direction I give in my education is, well, inset that beam into the house and bear on the wall. That would be kind of like one joist that you, and now you have to really handle that flashing saddle over the top and how you protect that. And it's tough enough to do just with one beam that the idea of trying to do it with all your joists, you know, if I was a building department and someone came in with that design, I would have a professional, a design professional behind it. And I would scrutinize the heck out of it. And chances are it wouldn't happen because probably a design professional with an obligation to their licensure would know better than to put their name on that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that's that, that would, if I guessed how that story would end, it would probably end that way. Okay. We have a question that's come in from so, Instagram live So the here. long answer is no. Don't do it. Long no. <laughs> Question from Instagram here from TC Dex. What about sistering your joist to existing cantilevered floor joists? Okay, 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 okay. All right, now you got to dip. Now you when you that kind of ties in with that ledger talk before. Yeah. And that and now this is a scenario, and I actually teach this in my classes. It's a wonderful way to deal with connecting a deck off a cantilevered portion of the house floor. Okay, what happens when you stand out on the end of a diving board? You know, it weighs down the diving board, and if a heavier person stands on it, it's going to weigh it down even more. So that's the cantilevered floor joists are like a you know a little stiffer diving board. But you've got to both know that you're making the connection to those end joists, which is very difficult, and that those joists can actually support that load, you know, out on the end of the diving board. And that becomes incredibly problematic. So one of the best ways I've seen that handled is exactly that, removing the soffit below, removing the rim off the face of that cantilever, extending your floor joists for the deck, the deck joists, all the way in and not now you're sistering them to the floor joists of the house for lateral restraint. So they're not pulling out horizontally, Mm -hmm. but you've got it. You wouldn't want that for your vertical load. You'd have to bring that joist all the way in. Your floor cavity is going to be open now. And you set that on top of your wall plates or your foundation plate. If it's a first floor, then you still have that tricky part of wrapping it all back up and getting the flashing and everything sealed out on the front. And that can certainly be, you know, that's a attention to detail kind of spot. That is a rock solid way to connect, not to a ledger or a cantilever, but through a cantilever 
and you can do it with the cookbook without an engineer. Perfect. Okay. Last question, unless we get something that comes up on Instagram during this answer. Uh, and this is one that I came up with during this conversation here, but I'll make it long. Sure. <laughs> Why is it like, what explains the differences in approved spans from different councils? So the American wood council, Canadian wood council, the different, the different, um, I guess councils or committees that put forth span charts. Why do they differ so much sometimes on the same lumber, same spans, same everything? Uh, interesting question. And I'm probably not the person to give the depth of answer that could probably be provided. You know, you probably need someone slightly more in that, in the, the that realm. Um, <clears throat> and I can't speak to Canadian codes. I don't know what you guys are doing up there. Uh, Neither but let me put we it this way. Either. Here's some tips I can get, give to you. You have to know what your input variables are first. Like here's a scenario. The IRC in chapter five has had floor joist spans since like before the IRC existed, way back in all these vintage code books I have, right? For how far you can span a floor joist inside a house. And until we had deck codes, people would utilize those for the, and they would go find the joist spans using those span tables. Well, that was incorrect because the variables weren't correct. One variable being wet use. Okay? And this is where you get this for in the US, you're going to get this information from the NDS, National Design Specifications. And that's like the code, if you will, for engineers. And I know a little bit about it, but I went to some engineering school, but I am not an engineer. I just pretend like it sometimes. So that's where I'm qualifying myself there <laughs> or unqualifying myself. Yeah. If you go to the NDS, you'll see that there are factors to that will of their input variables. You know, they're, they're factors, they're variables to your equation that you're trying to solve. And so wet use is one of them. When wood is wet, it's not going to be as structurally sound. And again, I don't know exactly what truly is affecting. Is it stress? Is it strain? Is it deflection? I'm not exactly sure how it affects it, but it affects it. And then the other one would be incising. Those of you that are from the West Coast that are familiar with Douglas fir that's treated. Douglas fir is really dense. And you know, you've seen it with the cuts, all the little cuts and incisions in it. That incised wood is to help that dense species get the treatment to soak in. Well, guess what you've done? You've cut all the little fibers of the wood. So there's an incision factor that they'll use in there as well. And so if you now look at the deck joist, the deck joist span tables, you can't span as far as you can in the regular floor joist span tables in the same code book. But if you look at the footnotes of that deck span table, it'll tell you in sizing and wet use factor were used. Right. Um, so that would be, that would be the one thing. And then of course, you know, in the U S probably, I don't remember how many years ago it was, maybe the 2015 code. Um, there was a bunch of research done where the old growth trees were denser and they could, they were stronger. They were a denser material. They had less growth mm. between years. Your grain lines were tighter. And all of our span tables were based on testing and science related to that type of wood. And I'd say, you know, within the last 10 years, the powers of be, those people that study that stuff, they went in and reevaluated the common species of lumber that's now rapid growth. You know, it's getting much more growth between the years. And they actually reduced a lot of the allowable spans. And again, that's based on all that stuff, modulus of elasticity and all these things that are engineer talk, not not Glenn talk. That's a great answer. I mean, that makes a lot, a lot so of there's sense. A, yeah, there's sort of an answer. It's kind of an answer. No, it's great because I know that there's some changes happening within our our location here where, they're, you know, they're making some updates to the 
uh, building permit process for decks and they've reduced a lot of the span charts from what they were last year even. And so same lumber, but all of a sudden everything's getting a lot uh, more strict and their, their reasoning is that the Canadian Wood Council has adjusted, so they're just following suit kind of thing. But if you go north two hours to our other location in a different city, the exact same lumber we sell here versus the, summer, the lumber we sell two hours away, the different cities uh, have different span charts. And so it's, it's, it's frustrating that sometimes some of these cities can't all get on the same board and follow the same thing. And maybe that's, maybe that's just our area that's doing yeah. that, but it's kind of funny when well, up here, you know, we can span a two by 10 this much here, but up, up in Saskatoon, we can go a foot further. And it's like, well, why it's the same thing, yeah. same climate, same everything, yeah. but it is what it is. Curve on the earth is bigger <laughs> well, up there. And remember, I, I should clarify. I'm glad that you said that because remember I'm speaking to model codes, Yes. but we haven't had the 2015 is the first time we got spans for deck joists. Right. And a lot of jurisdictions are just now getting onto the 2015. So prior to 2015, you had nothing. And when you have no cookbook, you have everybody guessing. Right. And so, yeah, these jurisdictions created their own span tables. Now I kind of think I understand the nature of this question a little better, because again, prior to having these in the code, people would use the interior floor joist ones. And then I knew of jurisdictions that hired their own local engineers to do their own analyzing of the stresses of the lumber from the NDS. And that includes the comfort levels of the engineer. Right. And they would produce their own span tables. And so, yes, across the U.S., you know, as now they're getting to use this model code where we can get some consistency prior to that, yeah, I'm sure it's very inconsistent. And that's the message deck builders really need to understand again. Creating code is a good thing. Yeah. It is a good thing. It allow it gives you something that is consistent from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. You know, the 30 different jurisdictions someone would work in in Denver. If we can get everybody to just point to the model. Well, then that's all going to be the same. And it takes away that local opinion, you know, right. like, yeah. well, there is no answer for this. So we're going to make up our own answer. Right. And that's where they got to realize creating code in the deck industry when there's been no code is why it's been kind of the wild, wild west. And, and builders have no idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows what weird things some building department's going to pull out. Yeah. Those there were the times. And as they get adopted to these new codes, those times should hopefully be coming to an end. Right. Is there any motivation from the ICC to push the model codes on to jurisdictions? Or do they basically just kind of put it out there and be like, here it is, use it as you see fit? Or is there, is there a faction of that organization that's saying like, we should really send somebody out there and try to get these different jurisdictions to update to the newest one? And like, or is there, do they just kind of put it out there oh, and yeah. be like, it's yours to have like... Uh, no, ICC is actively involved in promoting their codes. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, they have government, they have, I can't remember the title of it, but I know a couple of the guys are, they're great. They're like the boots on the ground guys, governmental relations or something. And they have different regions of the country that they take care of where they go, their boots on the ground from ICC, they go to the building departments, they offer support, they offer help. They're like the reps for the product manufacturers. Right. Now they're out there trying to promote the good word of the code and trying to get, you know, get it, um, newer and later versions of it adopted. And then, you know, I don't want to get into something controversial or overspeak, but any of this kind of stuff takes money. And typically if people are going to spend money and resources, they're looking for something out of it. Like, what are we getting? Why are we doing this? What's our return? Right. And in promoting codes, a lot of it is what is society talking about? What's the latest trend? What's the thing that's exciting? 
energy conservation codes. So truthfully, there is a lot of money and a lot of resources for folks to do a very active promotion of adopting and moving to the latest energy code. And, you know, I myself have, have been able to, you know, get work because of that kind of funding there. And then what often happens is the funding is really about the energy code because that's the big new exciting thing. That's the thing that, you know, we got to take care of global warming, blah, 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 climate change, I don't know, all that stuff. Let's not go there. And so, but what comes along with it? All the rest of the codes kind of get to ride the coattails of the energy code because that's often where the funding is located. Right. Um, so it's kind of an answer to your question yep, there. No, it's, you know, it's a lot about what people are interested in, right? Like if people aren't interested in something, no one's going to write a code change proposal for it. Nobody's no. going to go try to promote it. I can show you figures in the code that haven't been changed for 50, 60 years because no one cares and they're bad. They're outdated, but, but nobody cares. No, so no one fixes it. Yeah. I have a question. I hope you have an answer for, but you might not. And if you don't, then don't worry about it. But what's the goofiest sure. deck related code proposal that you've seen put forward? Like that you read and were like, what the hell were these people thinking? Like why? <laughs> oh, I don't want to be mean to people's ideas. Oh I no, be mean. Like, they're, not wa- they're not watching Glenn. They don't, nobody listens ideas, to us. And then I go make fun of them and laugh at them. <laughs> so I, I won't say like the goofiest or the worst. I will say some memorable ones. <laughs> Fine. Um, and, and this is a good here. Actually, this will be a good, this will be a good one. It'll tie into my encouragement. There was a memorable one when I was there in 2013 for 20, for the 2015 IRC. It's not exactly deck related, but it is definitely deck related. It was related <laughs> to guards. And there was, there was a mother there, right? Just had nothing to do with construction, nothing. She set up a baby. She, or she had photos. She had a, like a house with a loft, you know, on the second floor with a guard next to it with the maximum, no, you know, less than four inch sphere spacing, your typical spacing. Yeah. And she had photos showing her baby being able to pass through those guards and get and go through them. And so she was arguing that this four inch spacing is not, is not good. Look, my baby can get through it. And of course, at the other side of the loft that was open to the house, she had a baby gate, you know, to lock the baby in the loft area. And so her argument was she had all this stuff cited from the um, Consumer Product Safety Commission. There are standards for how big the spacing can be on a baby gate because that's a safety issue because what's, you know, because the baby gate has to serve a particular function and performance. And so to do that, there's safety provisions for it. I think it was like two and three eighths of an inch, something like that. I'm going off memory from a long time ago. So her proposal was to reduce the guard spacing to two and three eighths inch. And it was tough because of course she's up there as a mother. It's very emotional Mm -hmm. concern. Look at my baby. These codes are going to kill my baby. And I, and other people got up and spoke in opposition and basically was like, ma'am code is about what's probable, not what's possible. Right. Right. Like Mm. that tornado could hit this building right now. It's possible. We're not going to write code. It's it's not at probable enough in this region I'm in. Right. So the argument to her was like, look, it is very possible. You have a particularly small child that can get through here. But this isn't a probable hazard that all the everyone has to deal with in their home. You need to buy another baby gate and put your baby fence up against the guards. And 
she was turned down and her proposal didn't go forward. But that's one that's one that I remember. And what I like, the reason I picked that story to tell is because I'm not putting her down for that idea. She, you know, in her world, that was probable. Sure. But she yeah. had to open up and realize code is a minimum standard. And so we aren't going to protect everybody's baby because of your one baby. And we have to figure out where we draw that line. But I wanted to share it because what was it? It was someone totally unrelated to construction yeah. that had a concern, yeah. had an idea, and kudos to her. Congratulations to her for being brave and confident enough to take what she wanted as a minimum standard to protect her fellow Americans. She took that to the hearings. I'm going to start crying. Like, that yeah. is awesome. And so I would never put anyone down for their ideas like that. I will speak against you if I if I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but other people might speak for you. And then we all mix all those opinions together and we try to find what's best for everybody. Perfect. Glenn, that's all the questions I have for you, but I want to give you a chance to uh, say what you need to say. If you feel like anything's been kind of left out or if you want to communicate, because the majority of our podcast listeners are contractors and industry folks, uh, product reps, vendors, et cetera. So the floor is yours to just kind of give us anything else you want to communicate. Thanks. I won't, I'll, I'll be brief because I think I've, I've drilled down some of the things I wanted to, which is the big thing is this, folks. The code is yours. It's for you. It's your tool. It's not a weapon of the government. It probably feels like it because you've empowered it that way. You've relinquished power. You've sat down and shut up in the corner for so long, just asking what the building officials want, just satisfying each little local code as told to you through the inspector. You didn't go online and look at the code amendments. You didn't buy the book. I didn't when I was a builder. That's why the codes, honestly, I could cut half of them out of that book. You know, they can have a tendency to get bigger and bigger. The 2000 IRC was 568 pages. We're now up over a thousand pages. And again, a lot of that is providing for you. But Mm -hmm. if I'm gonna provide you a recipe for something, don't I want the input of the people who have been cooking with that recipe for like a living? Mm -hmm. We need you to bring your voice into these codes, but you have to do that by not making your goal. I build correctly because this one day, this inspector passed me. I get calls from attorneys because a lot of it's because of my vintage code book collection. Stairs are a big one. People are at their friends' houses or whatever. They fall on the stairs. And even the friends are like, go ahead and sue me because I want to help cover your medical bills. My insurance will take it, right? Builders are going to get drug into that. I have had to look up stair codes from the 1950s <laughs> to find out if some particular stair was built according to the code adopted at that time and what the standard was at that time. Right. So if you just please the inspector because he's lazy and not paying attention, but you don't actually know if you did it right, the inspector's not going to be with you in court. It's all about you. The code even has a section that says you are responsible 100%. So that's the first thing, right? And then the next thing is you can't really contribute to creating a better future code, getting steel framing in the code, addressing what loads should be on pergolas. So building officials aren't just picking, well, we're going to make it 40 pounds per square foot. You can't be a part of that unless you learn what is the latest code, even if it's not the one your jurisdiction is adopted on. And so I encourage them to, that's it. That's my final encouragement. And yes, I sell code education. So maybe I'm biased, 
Um, but I'm also seeing how the code gets developed. And, and the building industry is usually eight years behind. So okay. 2024 IRC, proposals are due this January. You can't have a say if you don't learn the latest code. Perfect. Um, and then I, the other thing I would say with that is learn the code that's adopted in your jurisdiction. Learn it. Be proud of it. Be proud that you're a professional. And respectfully, stand as a professional and talk to the inspectors. I will tell mm -hmm. you as an inspector, there were times I had no idea what I was looking at, not in decks, but we get thrown to all kinds of things. Some folks are, are humble enough to, to talk to the contractor about it and kind of learn from them. I was thrown on commercial roof inspections. I'd never been on a commercial roof in my life, but as the newbie inspector, they threw that to me. And at first I would like fake it with these roofing contractors. Like I was walking around, like I knew what I was looking for, totally faking it into passing the inspections. There was this one old timey roofer, man. He looked like an alligator, his skin. He'd obviously been in the sun his whole life. He looked right through me and saw how fake that 28 year old was. And he was like, you want to spend some time and learn a little about commercial roofs with me? And I was like, yes, because I didn't know what I was looking at. I That's spent the awesome. next hour learning about commercial roofs from the contractor. Inspectors know a lot about code. They know a lot of a lot of things, but they don't know about much about decks as you guys do. And they're not going to take the time to go study. Deck codes are like a tiny little part of a thousand something page book. Yeah. You are the experts on it. You learn it. You talk respectively to the inspector, respectfully, like you should talk to everybody. Treat them at your level. You are professionals. Stand, stand as a professional. Discuss. Anyway, that's that's what I encourage you guys. To yeah, do. I think I back when I was building, there was a time in my life too where I looked at building inspectors as just a as um, the like you didn't have a favorable look upon them because you thought that they were just up there. They were going to show up to bust your balls and tell you what you did wrong. That's kind of the attitude you had towards mm -hmm. them, right? But at some point, eventually, if you're around them enough, you all of a sudden learn like, no, that's his name's Vern. Vern, like yeah, you and Vern are going to have a yeah. look at this. Like they're people, right? They're not unreasonable, like just slamming their finger in a book and telling you and shaking yeah. their finger at you. They're there. Like they're not, most of them are not out there to make your life miserable. Right. They're just there to do their job. So like work with them. They're, yep. they're very reasonable. And there are, people there's bad time. inspectors. Certainly. And yep. there's bad contractors. Yep. I have shown up. I always, you know, happy go lucky, smiley, friendly inspector love to teach during my inspections. Cause I love teaching. Yeah. And you would hit those guys. You know, it's like the guys I, I still deal with on social media online where it's just like, okay, yeah, it's going to go like this today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you sigh and yeah. I've got one more question for you that came up while we were chatting there from Precision Construction. He's asking, Wait. he's he's asking, uh, fire resistant construction of decks. Is that going to end up showing up in 2024? Oh, you guys are killing me. You're killing me. <laughs> so that's another big issue in the code. Big issue. I, I'm on deck groups on Facebook and social media. I'm also on code groups and social media. And literally, I think it was earlier this week, someone posted about that with Dex and I got tagged in it. And um, I actually just made a video. I, I, I responded with a video. So I got a good video answer for that on YouTube, on my YouTube channel. It's called Fire, uh, Fire Separation Distance and Dex. And I made that video to respond to those code folks. And the answer is there isn't an answer. Code people try to use projections 
which, you know, and then address fire protection for a projection, which is all written for soffits and eave overhangs from a roof. And, and trying to stretch that to decks is ridiculous. And uh, that's where people are, that's often what ends up being the answer. That was the answer a lot of other code professionals gave on that question on the, on the social media. Um, and it is on my to-do list for, uh, for 2024, but not sure, not sure if it'll get, if it'll get moved forward. Cause you know, again, I, I only have so much funding yeah. to do that work and I have a mortgage to pay. So I have to pick and choose what I'm going to move forward in 2024. Um, but it is definitely an issue. I will tell you, there was a proposal back. I remember it well. And I even, I did a video recently showing my testimony from 2013 testifying in opposition to a fire protection proposal for decks. Um, and someone out of California, building official out of California, basically proposed um, no decks within five feet of the property line or within five feet of an accessory structure. And that would have prohibited like a deck connecting between a house and a detached garage if it had stairs that would access off. And the, and the argument was about, you know, if there's a fire and people are running out onto their deck, you know, we don't want a fire from the garage affecting their ability to egress out of the house onto the deck and onto the ground. But, you know, I spoke against it as, as a bunch of folks did because it wasn't fully worked out. And since that time, I haven't seen anyone come out with another proposal. It will take a village. It'll take more people. I need fire experts. You know, I need yeah. to be able to connect with people in the industry that are that, that know about fire propagation um, because a ground level deck is going to be very different than an upper level deck. Right. Um, the right. urban wildland, the wildland urban interface code to protect structures from from wildfires it does have some provisions in there for fire protection of decks, but it's about wildfire protection, not your neighbor's house. Right. Um, so that is an area that needs study and needs work. And it is definitely incredibly inconsistent in the code. Like I said, you can check my YouTube video on that because it, it, it'll, it'll show you the problems that we have right now in the code with that. Right. Perfect. Okay. Well, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, if somebody missed it, you can be found at deckcodes.com. And so if anybody's got questions for Glenn, I'm sure, do you have your social media stuff linked from that website as well? I have it. I'm, I'm working on updating that page. I have all my online education there. I have a contact me form there. I have a link to get my deck code book there from ICC. Um, and then I'll put some links to social media, but that that's a smaller page of my greater page, uh, buildingcodecollege.com. Yeah, I was going to say but building deck code college. It's just a quick URL to take you to like a deck specific page. Right. Okay. Perfect. So. Okay. So Glenn, thanks so much for your time today. You've given us, uh, you've been very generous with your time and your knowledge. I think this is going to be a great podcast that ages very well mm -hmm. uh, that'll be listened to for a long time if you haven't already picked it up i've got a copy here because we picked up a couple of copies uh, of deck construction based on the 2021 international residential code this is glenn's work here that he's kind of extracted the deck related information out of that th that book he's shown on the video here a few times that looks yeah. scary as all hell because it's like bigger than the bible uh, he's done all the work for you yeah. and taken out what you need to know into this much more reasonable, consumable piece of book here, which you can get in either a soft copy or a digital copy from the ICC's website as well. So if you are a deck builder, you should have this book, like just point uh, blank. Yeah. It's not expensive. It's a good quick reference guide for all sorts of things. It's laid out well. There's great diagrams in it. Um, buy one if you're in the, like you're going to spend $40 on coffee this week. 
Put yeah. that towards a deck code book. It's a great, it's a great cookbook. Right? It's a great cookbook. <laughs> totally. Okay, Glenn, thanks so much for your time, man. Uh, we'll touch yeah. base again. We'll definitely bring you back. Like, we, I, What I would love to do is when you get down the road of that of 2024 and you start to get a handle of what's coming, I would love to have you back on to kind of yeah. give people a bit of a heads up as to what's coming in the new code book. I think that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, no, we should plan something around November or something like that. Um, and I'll have some updates for you because right now we're working on the swimming pool and spa code. So like in a month, I'll be going to the ICC hearings in Pittsburgh for a different code book for the pool and spa code, which does have a deck section. So awesome. if we do something, if we talk I with you guys see. in November, I can I can share with you what NADRA and myself are, are bringing forward as proposals. And I can tell you maybe a little bit about that swimming pool code and how it affects decks. That would be amazing. Right. Are you going to be at deck expo in Dallas in November at the pool, small patio show? I am. Yeah. I'll be teaching two classes. I got a brand new class. there about, about decks and hot tubs and all the things you got to watch out for um, as a designer, not as an electrician installing the hot tub, but as a deck designer, incorporating it into your deck, there's some codes that get missed a lot, but yeah, I'll be at deck expo and hope folks will come by and say hi to me. Amazing. So reach out to Glenn. If you're going to be at deck expo, you can find him there too, as well as us till next week, everybody take it easy. Thanks for tuning in. Awesome. Hey, thank you for listening to the Ultimate Deck Podcast. Now you know what we're about. Check the site, come and shop. UltimateDeckShop.com. Hit us right away for sponsorships. So tell us if you want to collaborate. Let's go. Check us out on any social networks. Thank you for listening.